What is up, misfits and rebels, far and wide, fist bumps all round, and welcome back to the James Kennedy Podcast. I hope you're all doing awesome. Before we get down to business, please remember to subscribe and share the podcast, because as you know, I am pretty much shadow banned on everything right now, and I need your help to get it out there. So get on it! We're in for a special one today, guys, because I'm joined by someone who's got a pretty unique and interesting role in the world. I'll let them explain further, but check this out. The official bio includes video journalist, filmmaker, news outlet owner, and if you don't know the name, you have definitely seen their content. Ford Fisher's work has been featured on tons of mainstream news programs around the world and more than a few major Hollywood movies. I'm super excited to chat with Ford today about his very unique approach to journalism, and I'm sure lots of other stuff too. So Mr. Ford Fisher, thanks so much for being with us. How the hell are you doing? Doing great. Thank you for having me. Hey, anytime. It's a pleasure. And uh, how was your day today? Because you were up to some pretty interesting stuff this morning, right? That's right. So on the day that we're uh, recording this here, it's uh, Monday. And so for the last week, uh, there have been some climate activists in uh, D.C. and then also in um, West Virginia. And so um, today uh, they had planned on uh, doing some kind of a direct action, uh, meaning you know, a nonviolent protest that would be sort of confrontational or disobedient against uh, the police. Um, It remains to to be seen what exactly that would have been, uh, because on route, uh, their bus broke down. So they had been coming in a bus and the bus broke down. Um, I got there a little bit uh, after that after that first began. Um, But I was actually told that when the police approached the scene, they said something like we found them. (laughs) So. Uh, what ended up happening was that the police basically subjected this uh, bus to a DOT inspection and said that they have the wrong permits and all that kind of thing. And basically, the police were going to try to tow away uh, their bus. Um, In the end, what was very interesting was uh, someone who purely by coincidence owned the building adjacent to it said uh, they can push the bus onto my property uh, since the reason for the towing was that it was essentially illegally parked. Right. Um, With that being said, uh, the police did give, still give the activists a $1,000 citation. And so the reason that this is interesting, of course, you know, I'm not typically covering sort of traffic enforcement issues. <laughs> uh, the reason that it's interesting is to see the way that the state interacts with um, activists, particularly those who are confrontational. So this group uh, has been in D.C. now for this is kind of entering their second week. But uh, Wednesday of last week, I filmed um, some of the same people chain themselves to the White House fence. Uh, one wow. woman who participated, uh, who was there today, um, speaking with the police, uh, you know, just last Wednesday, I filmed her with a bike lock around her neck, connecting herself to the White House fence, which she had to be cut out of. Uh, and last Friday, they also similarly had uh, stepped in front of traffic to block a major highway uh, during rush hour. And so this particular group's sort of uh, focus is sort of being uh, disruptive in order to make a point. And in this case, it was to force Biden to declare a climate emergency by executive action. Yeah, we've got the same thing happening over here at the moment. It's um, we're a few days into the big Extinction Rebellion rebellion in London and well, all around the country, but the main one's in London right now. Um, that actually finishes this week. And I'm performing there, funny enough, uh, day after tomorrow. So um, yeah, lo- lots of similar actions happening, you know, with regards to the climate issue all, all over the place right now, which is good to see, you know. Um, I think for context then, for those few people listening who may not be aware of what it is and how you do it, because I think that's really interesting. Um, could you give us like a brief overview of how you work, what, what, what the nature of the work is that you do and your particular approach? 
Sure. So the idea of what I do, I call it a primary source documentary uh, video. And so my idea is that, you know, as you might have learned in elementary school, right, the difference between sort of a primary and a secondary source is that, you know, a primary source is, is raw documentation of the thing that happens, original documents, transcripts, videos, that sort of thing, versus most of the news that you really watch is actually rather secondary sources, right? So when you watch CNN and they have, you know, maybe a panel discussion uh, about a event that occurred before, it's not primary source documentation of the story they're talking about. It's opining about it. It's describing it mm. to you in sort of a modified or edited way. And so the way that I think about my work, and so it is a, it's a form of journalism to be sure, but the reason I use this term, you know, primary source documentary video is that I think of it as sort of the building block. So um, I go to events and to the best of my ability, I try to document them without sort of impacting them. Uh, and without opining on them. So when I filmed the thing I described today or like activism that happened over the last couple of weeks, I'm not out there rooting for the activists or rooting for the police for that matter. Um, I'm trying to document what happens. And I realize, of course, that we don't live in a in an amoralistic world, right? Things are good and bad, um, but those are those are inherently opinion. Um, and so my point isn't that... Uh, that you, I'm not trying to declare an equivalence of two sides or anything like that, but by having raw footage showing what happens, you start from a place of truth and you have to have that initial truth in order to then have the kind of analytic discussion, yeah. the secondary source kind of journalism that comes from those sorts of things, right? In order for people to have an informed you know, conversation about something being good or bad, they need to have <laughs> the information about what it was to begin with. So I think I think it's brilliant, man, and it's so unique. I mean, basically, you turn up at protests or political rallies or events, or it could be anything, armed with a camera, and you just document, oftentimes live streaming the entire event as it happens in real time. As you mentioned, you know, without any kind of editorial or spin or slant, you just share the the um, the raw footage, the live stream as it's happening for other people to witness and form their own views on. And it also forms a kind of archive of events afterwards, you know, when they are spun by, you know, news outlets or whatever. You've got that archive there for all of us to refer back to, which is such a powerful thing to have. And I know that your footage is used by mainstream media, like all over the world. Yep. Um, I think it was actually used. I think I actually used some of your footage in my music video, actually, that was taken down by YouTube. But we'll come on to that. Okay. Um, it's just such an interesting approach you've got. I mean, I've not really known of anyone else doing this. I mean, are there other people doing this? Is, is, is this a thing or is it very much a you thing? Because it, it's, I think it's so cool, man. Yeah, I mean, there are some other um, people and outlets that do this kind of thing. So I would, I, I am quite friendly with people who I think others might assume are my competitors. Uh, so I will say that as far as like independent journalism goes, um, I think people who do the same thing as me, I think of as, you know, friends rather than competition. But so, for example, uh, BG on the scene is one uh, videographer who has a pretty similar uh, style. There's also a uh, scooter caster is the name of um, a New York based a uh, videographer who similarly hires other contractors, which is also something I do, um, sort of similarly building an archive. Um, many of her uh, things kind of do this same style, whereas I do more about political activism. She does that, but also, uh, you know, cr like basically crime and law enforcement in New York, which right. is not as much of um, my own focus. But so I, I really appreciate that because I think that that kind of primary source documentation uh, applies to things probably beyond uh, the, the exact type of stories that I focus on. So for me, I think that political movements are really fascinating because they capture 
in a real time, much more visual way, um, the the kind of extremities of what people uh, are thinking in a country at a mm. given time, right? So, so when people have some kind of issue that they care about, you know, guns, abortion, environment, taxation, you know, whatever, war, foreign policy, whatever it is, um, it is always the most passionate. Uh, people who care about any given issue that go out on the street, but there are passionate people in in both directions, right? So, I mean, I think that we saw this very critically in the United States um, leading up to and then throughout the Trump era. And there was a little bit of a um, downturn of the amount of political street activism following the departure of President Trump from the White House. Um, but during that time, like the tensions in the country could really be exemplified or sort of visualized by talking to people uh, out on the street who, you know, for every one person who you might see on the street, there's probably a lot more uh, mild people, but who are thinking the same thing, yeah, for sure, uh, yeah. you know, at home. Such a great thing to be doing, man. I mean, what are some of the greatest hits then? What are some of the events that you've covered that people on our side of the pond would be like, no way, that was that guy? You know, is there any content that you've created that, uh, but you know, not created, but shared that's, uh, you know, uh, particularly uh, worthy of mention? Right. No, I understand your question. Um, so I would first point, so doing it kind of chronologically, um, one of my first stories that was very uh, important to me to document was um, the riots that, that took place in Baltimore. So this was, um, you know, only several months after riots had begun in Ferguson, which the co-founder of my company had uh, gone to shoot. And I was kind of editing and working on that from home. Um, but I went to Baltimore uh, when the riots were taking place there in 2015. And um, so documenting the time period in which um, civil unrest had taken place there. And that is a time period that actually is now uh, somewhat being re-examined because of much of the Baltimore police uh, corruption that was really uncovered in the years following that. So um, just as an example of how that becomes relevant, you know, that was one of my first very, very major stories that was being covered. But my and my co-founder's footage from that situation is actually being used in the HBO show, uh, We Own the City, which comes wow. out uh, on uh, April 25th and, and covers that Baltimore police corruption. Um, going forward from there, um, I docu- you know documented a lot of the rallies kind of leading up generally uh, to the presidency of, of Trump. Um, but then on Trump's inauguration day, um, this has somewhat been forgotten in history, oddly. Uh, but there were there was rioting when when Trump was inaugurated. There was sort of direct uh, kind of anti-fascist resistance to that. Um, I think some would argue that it was unproductive or that the the targets were not necessarily as related. Right. The breaking of, you know, a bank the glass outside of a bank, you know, Starbucks window, an Alban Pan, right? Like, um, <laughs> you know, some people I think might question, you know, the validity of those as targets, but 200 people were arrested um, uh, during that time period. Um, seven months later from then, of course, was um, the rioting in Charlottesville, um, which really, really captured the country's attention um, from then and was often used in its relation to how um, then President Trump res- responded to it, right? That many people were criticizing um, him for making what they saw as an equivalency uh, between the two sides, saying there are many fine people. Um, and, you know, and of course, there's been, you know, massive amounts of criticism, you know, of the media then for saying that based on, you know, things that they excluded. And so, you know, people go back and forth on this, but it really highlights the value of raw footage, um, you know, to be able to point to and have an informed discussion. Um, so, so documenting that violence that took place in Charlottesville has since then 
um, been included in in many documentaries, including that I uh, associate produced a documentary for PBS um, that ultimately ended up winning an Emmy. Um, more recently, uh, well, so, somewhat more recently was, uh, of course, January 6th. Um, but so in addition to, to capturing the scenes of January 6th itself of being, um, you know, in, in the, you know, at the Capitol and, you know, amidst the violence and everything, um, was that I had been documenting the entire Stop the Steal movement that led up to January 6th, um, you know, since the election actually happened. I think most people are aware of January 6th itself, but I don't think if you ask most people that they would know, for example, that that was the third of three so-called million MAGA marches that took place in Washington, D.C. There was also November 14th and December 12th that also brought thousands and thousands of Trump supporters to Washington, D.C., and that there were also a number of state rallies. So I, I went to, for example, Georgia, where there was a stop, an armed Stop the Steal rally and vigil for Trump. I had a contributor in Arizona, another contributor in Oregon, uh, filming these Stop the Steal events. So, so not only, it, you know, it didn't just come out of nowhere, right? When people are asking, like, you know, how did we not see this coming? Right. How did this happen? You know, I have the footage to kind of answer that question, which is, you know, you can see how it built from, you know, I filmed the very, very first Stop the Steal rally. It was outside the RNC on November 5th, only two days after the election. There was only like 20 people there and people didn't really take it particularly seriously. Um, but as Trump himself very much got on board with that message, obviously, um, and as much of the uh, Republican Party uh, began to sort of buy that message that it that it grew. And as the organizers of the so-called Stop the Steal movement uh, went state to state, they were they were telling people not this is not just a D.C. issue or something like that. Uh, but, you know, all of you from all of your states, you're all welcome. You're all invited to be part of this until, you know, as of January 6th, they had this big coalition of really every type of uh, pro-Trump group that you can imagine uh, showing up there. And then, um, you know, of course, ultimately storming the Capitol. That's fucking crazy, man. It really does show the importance of what you're doing, because certainly right now, you know, the propaganda machine is on overdrive right now. It's, it's running on such a high frequency. So to have access to just that pure, unadulterated footage is such an important antidote to all of that. I mean, right. is is this stuff, where are you hosting this stuff? Is it saved anywhere that isn't, you know, I know you use, you know, all, all the main platforms, YouTube, Facebook, you know, Twitter, Instagram. Um, but are you archiving and saving this stuff somewhere more permanent as well that isn't subject to the random whims of, you know, one of the main tech companies just deciding to take it down at any point? For sure. And I'd, and I'd be happy to go more into uh, those those exact whims. But to uh, put it simply, so I do have Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. But um, YouTube in particular has had a lot of the types of censorship issues that you were alluding to. Um, and so on that front in particular, I use a website called Odyssey. Oh, right, uh, great, great, yeah. Essentially, which basically, to those who wouldn't know, uh, backs up your YouTube videos automatically. And so um, like recently, I had a video of a January 6th defendant um, who is actually an elected official as well from New Mexico. Um, and he had been charged with uh, two misdemeanors. He did a bench trial. And so a judge acquitted him on one charge and uh, convicted him on the other. Um, so, you know, he got half the outcome he wanted, half the outcome the uh, prosecution wanted. Um, but when he came outside of court, he had a lot to say. And I filmed that press gaggle beginning to end, basically a half hour of people, uh, you know, asking him questions. What did he uh, think of his conviction? What are his beliefs now about Trump? What does he think about the future of his uh, political position? 
Um, and amidst that, he made a comment that he still believes that the election was stolen, which I think is important to document, uh, you know, that this January 6th uh, uh, participant still thinks that. Um, again, so I released this beginning to end, and I included on it, YouTube had a standard called countervailing views, where if somebody is going to, if you're going to have a video where anybody says that the election of 2020 was stolen, you have to have a countervailing view on it. And so I did that. At the bottom, it had a for you know for more information go to cisa.gov slash rumor control which is a US government website basically describing election integrity and saying essentially in in effect that the election wasn't stolen. And in spite of that, uh the video was taken down. Hmm. Um and I received what is essentially a permanent warning strike. And so I'm currently in the process of trying to fight that, right? I, I did the appeal process, but it was instantly denied. And so essentially, I have to do, in a sense, my own form of public activism by uh, using my platform, Twitter, and, and, you know, trying to push YouTube to reverse that decision. But the point of what I, you know, was circling back to on that was, uh, in spite of the video being taken down from YouTube, you can still go to Odyssey, and you will see exactly what that video uh, did look like, right? Because it's automatically archived. So you can see the title, description, exactly the video uh, that YouTube themselves took down. Thank God for that. Um, Odyssey's on the blockchain, is that right? Uh, my understanding is that Odyssey is blockchain oriented, yes. And so um, at least theoretically, it couldn't be sort of uh, tampered with by, you know, by some outside party. It should be uh, uh, more more safe from tampering. Great. Uh, thank God for that. Because I, I'm sort of having to get up to speed on all of this, uh, these alternative platforms myself now, because I'm just a humble musician that writes predominantly, you know, political music. And in uh, 2020, I released an album called Make Anger Great Again. You know, I'm not a Trump fan. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's right. a kind of a, an ironic title, tongue in cheek. You know, I'm a, I'm a kind of a traditional lefty. It was a um, kind of a protest rock album about, you know, let's take the streets and let's get angry and do something about this shit you know, type of thing, you know, standard stuff. Sure. And um, But because um, I had three words out of the four bad words, I've been basically fucking shadow banned on everything for two years ever since. Uh, my video was taken down from YouTube the day after it went up for just having protest footage and stock footage that I found online, which makes me wonder whether some of it may have been yours. Um, huh. They, they, oh, put what it, did they, what did they call it? Did they call it like over copyright or were they claiming that it was uh, too violent or hateful or something? Well, we were very careful to make sure there was nothing violent in the video because I didn't want to be seen to be promoting that. What I, the, the message of the song was about protest and activism, you know, and, and, and taking to the streets and people power sort of thing. So it was just stock, right. you know, protest footage, people marching and things. But they, what they had a problem with, they said it was they'd been striked for shocking content which I thought was very bizarre because there was no violence in there or anything like that. So I had a bit of a back and forth with them. And one of the main things they had a problem with was the uh, footage of the Colston statue being torn down in Bristol in the, in the UK. Um, I don't know if you were aware of that. They, they actually tore uh, a, a statue removal. A statue of a slave owner. Yeah, they decided that we, you know, we're sick of having this slave owner memorialized in our fucking city. We're going to tear it down. So they did, <laughs> which which is pretty awesome. And YouTube, wow, and YouTube considered it shocking to see a like a statue come down. Yeah, fucking crazy. Wow. But you know, I, I, had, I managed to get them to put it back up after a while. But as a result, you know, ever since then, I've not been able to uh, advertise on Google, you know, YouTube, Facebook or Twitter. I've had my advertising rights revoked uh, and, they, and they've been revoked for two years. Mm. So it effectively, you know, killed the album campaign. 
straight from the off. You know, I thought it was, I thought at the time I thought it was like a cool kind of ironic, funny kind of uh, timely album title. But uh, in hindsight, it was a really, really bad move. But I didn't, you know, I couldn't have foreseen the climate that was coming, you know, within a few months of that of that album coming out because it right. came out like a month before the uh, the big election in 2020. Sure. But the, but the reason I mention this is because if this is happening to me as a musician, you must have tons of this. Yeah. How do you deal with this? Right. Um, so I, I have several examples that I could point to of this. But so I will start with the first one that happened actually to me on YouTube like this. So in 2019, um, there was a situation I filmed that I actually thought was very fascinating, um, where at APAC, um, the American-Israel Political Action Conference, there are every year when this happens, um, Palestinian counter-protesters come and say, say their piece about it. And so in my normal style, I try to document these protests and also document the, res- the responses of um, the Israel supporters to the extent that they come outside and you know talk about it and dialogue happens. Um, but in one situation, uh, there was an individual who showed up who was a Holocaust denier. There was a guy who showed up and said that he doesn't like Israel and doesn't think Israel should exist because he thinks that the Holocaust didn't happen. Mm. And what happened that I thought was really fascinating and worthy of documentation was that um, one of the people from the, or some of the people, actually more than one people, um, from the pro-Israel side, as well as people from the pro-Palestine side who are in direct opposition in the context of more widely what was going on there, both of them sort of united to to tell off the Holocaust denier, right? They both together argued with the Holocaust denier for about 10 minutes, describing essentially why he's why he's wrong. Um, and he is wrong, right? <laughs> like, you know, as much yeah. as I don't, I don't want to opine or whatever. I mean, this is a, it is a factual truth yeah. that the Holocaust happened. And I'm, so I'm perfectly comfortable saying the Holocaust denier was wrong. Um, with that being said, what I ended up posting to YouTube was a raw video. It was about 10 minutes long. You barely hear my own voice in it. A couple of times I asked questions of the guy, um, like, why do you think that, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, but in, in essence, the video was titled something like, a Holocaust denier confronted by pro-Israel and pro-Palestine activists at APAC. Right. Um, and so in the summer of 2019, so that happens early 2019. In the summer of 2019, there was a situation where um, one YouTuber was accusing another of basically bullying him. And YouTube caught enough flack about this that they expanded their community guidelines to define what they considered to be hate speech and bullying. Um, such that it would then include the behavior that was being described as bullying, and so they could penalize that person. Um, and so when they put out a press release describing that they had changed their community standards, they basically said, we removed or demonetized a thousand channels that we now feel uh, fit into uh, the, the revised community standards. And so in that moment, right when they announced that, my uh, video of those two people confronting the Holocaust denier was removed from YouTube. And the and my entire channel was demonetized, not just that Shit. video, but all of my videos uh, could no longer make revenue. And I actually managed to get a lot of media attention about this. I got Forbes to write about it. I got ABC to write about it, um, basically talking about how, um, you know, it is very, very clear what the mistake was. Right. So so as you're pointing out, algorithms as opposed to just people they are looking for keywords. They, they, a, a computer is not making that distinction. So in the case of um, what happened to me, it probably saw that kind of like trigger word. Um, it hears the words of the person who was in the video 
And it doesn't know how to distinguish between the views of the person filming it and publishing it at context of why they're publishing it versus just if a computer transcribes the words and then sees, um, you know, essentially a string of text and describes, oh, that's that's vi- that's policy violative. Yeah. And so that went down and and erroneously. And I pushed, you know, even with all that media attention, I continued to push YouTube about it, tagging them constantly on Twitter, telling people to, t- to tweet at them, everything like this. And it took them until the beginning of the following year for them Jesus. to remonetize me, the beginning of 2020. And so it was a total of actually seven months that I was demonetized. And then they said, oh, it was de- your channel was demonetized in error. We apologize. <laughs> you know, I didn't get any money back. Right? Gee, for seven months. <laughs> But seven months of demonetization resulted right. from that. Um, and so then I thought, okay, fine, you know, now that they've now that they've fixed that, I hopefully I won't have this kind of issue again. Well, I was kind of wrong about that too. Um, so it when January 6th happened, uh, YouTube made a very rapid change of policy. And uh, so YouTube's stated reason for this is they basically said, um, well, we've realized that uh, that that people promoting what they call election election integrity disinformation um, are are inadvertently or or inadvertently, but they, that they are promoting violence, possibly. And so, basically, from January sixth on, uh, YouTube's policy became that footage that that videos that have claims of election fraud go down, and so. What ended up happening to, and of course, I have no videos where I claim anything like that. I've never told my audience that the election was stolen. Again, I'd feel comfortable saying I've seen no evidence the election was stolen. Um, but uh, with that being said, on January 6th, I filmed Trump's entire speech, right? So, so Donald Trump gave a 70-minute speech, and he was later impeached for incitement of insurrection, right? And so my 70-minute video uh, shows beginning to end from from where I was standing, uh, which was the uh, the National Mall, um, the perspective of basically the biggest bulk of people listening to that speech, who at the end of it responded to Trump saying, and now we're all going to march down uh, to the Capitol. And the, so this is the people who heard him say that and then and then subsequently did it. And so I, of course, as an independent journalist, I'm not going to take a position on whether or not Trump should have been found uh, guilty on incitement of insurrection. But it is without uh, any doubt that the footage captured a historic moment. This is the moment that uh, Trump is allegedly inciting the people who he is allegedly inciting, right? This is capturing yeah. him doing it and the people responding to it. And there are moments that would be very critical to our understanding of that event. For example, when he said, um, that the elections in the United States are worse than third world countries, his own words, uh, people responded, fight for Trump, fight for Trump, right? Some might argue that that actually is evidence of the fact that they are, that these people are hearing from him an incitement, that he isn't, he's inciting them by telling him these things, them th- these things. Um, but on the night that the House of Representatives delivered the articles of impeachment to the Senate, um, he, uh, you know, so this is the moment that that Donald Trump would consider himself to have been impeached. There was a little bit of this, like, you know, Trump used to say this thing that, like, oh, it'll it's only impeachment once it gets to the Senate. So if you're if you're to agree with Trump's definition, um, then the moment that Trump was impeached that night, YouTube took down um, my video of the speech, and they yes. said that my video of the speech was in itself 
election disinformation. Um, and so, of course, I, I vehemently uh, disagreed with this. Oh, and by the way, they demonetized my entire channel again oh, <laughs> oh, God in the sake. process. So frustrating. And so I vehemently disagreed with this. And um, I guess I sort of benefited from a news cycle in which everybody was very deeply interested in all things January 6th. So Fox News actually wrote an entire story about this. Um, They also talked about how Status Quo, a progressive independent outlet, um, which I would consider myself very friendly with the um, people who run it, um, often collaborating. We have a couple of freelance contributors in common, et cetera. But they had footage uh, from January 6th as well. Uh, that they had live streamed that was re- that was deleted from the internet, and some of that is basically lost forever um, for the same reason because oh, the people shit. you know at the Capitol were saying that the election was stolen, and so after uh, Fox News reported on it, they YouTube ultimately said, "Oh, this was in their own words." They said it was an over enforcement, um, so they they remonetized the channel, but they did uh, leave. The video down, and the and the the logic they said that they explained is that uh, in general, for a lot of the standards of YouTube on violence, uh, hatred, etc., there's a there is what what I consider to actually be very correctly uh, an ESDA exception: educational, scientific, documentary, or artistic. Huh. Right. So if you are posting a video, for example, uh, where somebody says uh, "sig heil" or says something hateful about a certain race or something. Um, YouTube is, in my opinion, actually accurately uh, pointing out that that there's obviously a difference when it's because of education, science, documentary, or art, right? So if you're making uh, a music video and there's some character in it who uh, says something hateful and then that person goes and burns in hell or something, I don't know, like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or you have a documentary that is, uh, you know, showing sequences of, of, of Nazi Germany or, you know, an education, you know, it is educational if you had a, a Hitler speech on YouTube that's not yeah. meant to promote Hitler, but so that you understand what he's saying, whatever. Yeah. These, are the, these are what the ESDA exception is for. But what YouTube came up with is that there is a new problem, which is that COVID and elections, these are the only two issues where they say, the ESDA exception is not just blanketly true just by being part of an ES or D or A uh, thing. What they said is that in these situations, if you have footage where anybody says one of those things, you have to have a countervailing view. So it's not just that I, as an impartial observer, document the Trump speech, but I have to actually actively say, uh, essentially, Trump is wrong, right? I have to point them toward a different source. And so what I started doing was Hmm. um, basically overlaying a link to a government website, CISA.gov slash rumor control, which basically is a government website describing uh, election integrity. And so while at least I have that solution now, at the time, there was no such proposition that you had to do this. And so I I know I'm being long-winded by giving a few examples, but there was one other very, very frustrating example of this that I think will show how stupid, uh, the way that YouTube's computers handle this and kind of how how dense they're being. So on Inauguration Day, so two weeks after January 6th, the whole city is very locked down. And whereas there would normally be lots of activism pro and against the incoming president on an Inauguration Day, this was a very locked down day. Military everywhere, very few protesters, whatever. But one protest outside the uh, inauguration was by basically like a like a religious hate group, people with the signs that say God hates and then, you know, expletives about uh, gay people and so forth. And something really fascinating happened. 
uh, a handful of people started yelling at them, telling their, them that they're wrong and stuff. But one of the people who did that was actually apparently a Trump supporter. And so there, so out of my eight minute video of people confronting this hate group, there was one person who said, and I remember, I remember from quote, I don't even have it in front of me, but I remember what he said. Um, he says, correct your hate, he yells at them. But then he says, I still believe the election was stolen, but you, sir, are preaching the wrong form of Christianity. Um, and earlier they had, there was a woman who was not wearing what I guess this uh, church considered to be, you know, good enough clothing or enough clothing or something. And he said, that woman that you just called a whore, that's a woman. Um, you know, a hu and he says a human fucking being. And so out of the, all of that quote, correct your hate. I still believe the election was stolen, but you, sir, are preaching the wrong form of Christianity. That woman that you called a whore, that's a woman. That's what he says. YouTube took down my entire eight minute video of that and gave me a suspension for a week Fuck, because man. because he in one part of one of those sentences, he said, I still believe the election is stolen. So one person amidst a whole video of an entire oh, situation, man. one person saying, I still believe the election was stolen. One random person yelling those words without me repudiating that out loud myself uh, is is grounds for the entire video's deletion deletion and punishment basically oh man that's so difficult for what you do day in day out this must be a fucking minefield man well it's exceptionally challenging in particular because with live streams um you know that could be really dangerous right if the uh you know essentially all anybody would have to do to get a youtube channel banned would be to go scream into somebody's live stream camera uh yeah. you know some verboten uh, term. This, is, yeah. this has happened a little bit with like um, some police have become privy to the fact that uh, copyrighted material can cause things to go down. So I've actually seen it documented in some cases where, for example, uh, when police are being filmed and they don't want to be, that they will you know, pull out their iPhone and then play like Taylor Swift or something to, make, <laughs> to trigger a takedown. Um, but, wow. but it's challenging because, again, in, in the case of what I was documenting, obviously I was not promoting the notion that the election was stolen uh, based, on, <laughs> based on, on having video of a person yelling at a hate group and saying that he thinks that. Um, but, but YouTube doesn't make that distinction because, because they just say words are words and yeah. context be damned. And so it's challenging because, in my opinion, by adding uh, even that overlay that says, you know, here's a countervailing view. Right. I'm I'm willing to do it so that my work can stay on the platform. But I, I find it deeply frustrating because in my mind, it's a, it's a modification. It's a change. It's me. It's me telling my audience something other than what's on the screen. You're trying to be completely impartial, but little by little, you've got to put all these little caveats on there and you've got to do this little dance within all these parameters and everything, which consciously or otherwise is putting you in a more of an ideological space. Even though you're not editorializing on it, you're having to fit within the confines of what the platform thinks is uh, acceptable narrative. And for me personally, I'm deeply suspicious of this stuff. You know, I went from thinking that it was, um, you know, safeguarding the public good during the pandemic and stuff like that, you know, the public health. But uh, I, the fact that there seems to be this ideological consensus across platforms you know, across all of the, the major social media platforms seem to have the same ideological consensus on what they think is acceptable um, discourse and ideas. It makes me wonder whether there's something more sinister at play here. Um, is this propaganda? Is it censorship? Or is it, you know, simply market forces? Well, I mean, I think that the, 
you could probably look at a like sort of a step wider and say what what pressures are affecting all of them, right? So if you watch um, the you know them dragging Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and then somebody from Google into the same uh, hearing, right? Like even if those outlets aren't necessarily uh, colluding with one another, um, although they might be <laughs> to be sure. But uh, they are hearing the same criticisms from Congress who basically tell them, if you don't focus on how to uh, get hate groups or terrorist groups or whatever off of your platform, like we're going to investigate you or we're going to regulate you in a way that adds mm. new liabilities and so forth. Right. Um, and it's actually it's been very interesting on that front to watch in Congress, where usually at the moment, usually it's sort of this partisan divide where the Democrats ask questions essentially saying, uh, why aren't you censoring more? And the Republicans are asking questions to the effect of why aren't you censoring less? Um, right. But I want to very much caveat what I'm saying there, because on the other hand, uh, it has historically not been true that the political right is the free speech uh, crowd and the political left is the anti-free free speech crowd, right? I mean, I think this is confined very much to the specifics of who who is who has institutional power at this exact moment and what are they using right. it for? Right. Um, but you know, just you know, now as the Republicans are kind of the uh, um, you know the minority party uh, that has you know fewer people and whatever, like they're talking about issues of you know certain books shouldn't be allowed in school, right? In different contexts, they are they are perfectly uh, willing to uh, accept sort of censorship, right? It's not an ideological free speech position. They're concerned about themselves being censored. Um, but I have also seen plenty of times where YouTube has censored uh, the left, uh, you know, the obvious political left, anti-war groups, yeah. uh, drug rights groups, LGBT uh, content has, has historically been censored on YouTube in a very disproportionate way. Um, and so I personally don't believe um, that it's so much about a bias against uh, the right or the left or something like that, but it's more like YouTube is... Uh, narrowing the Overton window into like sort of who is considered to be establishment. And so there's this irony where like, you know, my footage that went, my footage of Trump that was taken down until I re-uploaded it with a countervailing view, essentially saying, here's a link where you can learn about why Trump is wrong, and then it's allowed to be up. But before that, the raw version that was taken down, that same footage was used in a BBC documentary that was uploaded to YouTube without being censored, <laughs> right? Mm. So, when the, so when the BBC uses my raw footage um, in one of their films, then it is okay. When it is just me on my own channel, uh, then it is verboten. Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to ask you because I know your stuff gets used a lot. And how come it's okay for the mainstream media to have footage of violence and, you know, scenes that some viewers may find disturbing and things like that, you know, on YouTube um, and on, on daytime TV, but then independent journalists, such as yourself, you know, it's a problem mm -hmm. <laughs> oftentimes for the exact same footage. Right. And so I think that if you if you ask the social media platforms, if you asked YouTube, the answer that they would basically give to that is, well, a, a documentary or a news program is couching everything uh, with countervailing views because it's a secondary source. So, for example, CNN probably would not just reproduce beginning to end a Trump speech. They would show a little bit of a Trump speech and then spend 10 yep. minutes describing why what Trump said is bad. And so YouTube right. would say, therefore they have complied with the countervailing views exception. 
Um, Got you. Their other claim would probably be that uh, they talk a lot about what they think of as misinformation or reputable sources. And so they would say, well, CNN or BBC, they're reputable sources. So, so it's different when they post it as opposed to you. That's debatable. <laughs> I, I find that highly debatable because in my opinion, pri- primary sources are inherently more reliable than secondary sources. I, I think, in, in my humble opinion, my footage of an event like that is far more informative than seeing what some people behind a desk at CNN who weren't actually there think about the thing that I filmed for them anyway. <laughs> for real, yeah, for sure. Oh, man, it's so frustrating, isn't it? I mean, the problem, it, I mean, I've been battling with this, like I say, for about two years now, and I've been like looking at different options and things like that. And there are alternative platforms we can use. I mean, you mentioned Odyssey, and I know there are a few others as well. But the problem is the audience is on the main ones. And if right. you want to reach an audience, you've got to be on the main platforms like YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, Instagram. You know, so it's a difficult dance to do and it's a difficult line line to straddle because, you know, you want to be true to who you are and to what you do. Um, but at the same time, we are little by little being straightjacketed into being something that we're not. Right. And I mean, I, I would point out about those alternative sites that while I, I certainly like Odyssey and then Minds is the other one I have, which cross posts my yeah. cross posts, my Twitter uh, content that. Uh, my issue with alternative social media sites is not only just that they have smaller audiences, but that essentially the people who end up on those platforms are the people who yeah. have been censored by the other platforms. <laughs> so yeah. in my ideal world, my content would be very accessible to sort of ev- everybody who wants to uh, look at it. And if my content is only going on to the sort of censorship-free you know, alternative platforms, then I'm only finding people who have been censored into it to get there. And, conspiracy theorists and right-wing nut jobs you mean um well i think that's that's certainly the case with for example gab right like oh, when for real yeah <laughs> when gab became uh, a thing you know i don't think i necessarily i don't know enough about gab to like endorse the technology of it but i don't really have a technology problem with gab like in principle the concept of it is probably uh like there's probably a utility to it but in practice the people who end up on the website with the frog logo, uh, based on the fact that they've been banned off of Facebook, they all end up being basically, uh, you know, racist. <laughs> like, like they end, they they all ended up on one platform because they got banned from another platform uh, yeah. for for racism stuff. Uh, then you have a platform where it's all a bunch of those people uh, egging each other on, probably into yeah. becoming more extreme. And that's how you end up with, for example, the the shooter of the uh, Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018 was a Gab user. Um, oh, right. So um, this also somewhat was the case with, uh, albeit less extreme, but um, but Parler, right? Parler had so many people, for example, who were actually act- attended January 6th because Parler ended up sort of catering to uh, those who had pro-Trump positions who had been censored from social media. So while I am totally... Uh, you know, it is. It, I have no doubt that a lot of Trump supporters have sort of found themselves kicked off of social media and they're looking for an alternative. And it probably makes sense that one become sort of available to them. Like, I understand the business proposition of Parler. Uh, there's no appeal to somebody like me to go and post into a space where uh, my audience would end up being homogenous, right? There's, yeah. uh, there's nobody yeah. else to be found there. My content wouldn't be debated about in any meaningful way it would only be watched by people of one political persuasion and that's not yeah. really the purpose of journalism yeah anything you put into that hole is going to come out you know 
just confirming whatever bias they've already got. <laughs> and yeah, well, it's going to come out with a red ball cap on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I suppose I suppose it's a lesser of two evils situation. Then, like, you know, the, you know, the, the position we find ourselves in is uh, unfortunately, yeah, having to uh, you know change the way we deliver some stuff in order to stay on the platforms. Then so be it. But it is it is really frustrating, and I do I I, I still do feel quite sinister about the whole thing, man. You know, when 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 a song can be taken down because there's footage of a statue it's like oh for fuck's sake man i mean you know you can't foresee every tiny eventuality at that level you know and you can't know what people are going to like change their minds and then and then decide that this thing is is good or bad or whatever right so like in the case of this january 6th thing right january 6th caused them to change um their platform standard right and so my footage published like on gen literally like it was like late uh on that night so it was early january 7th morning that I published that Trump footage. And then like that basically was subject to like their immediately new, um, you know, community standards guideline or whatever. Um, so the, the, the standard is constantly changing. Um, and I think that people have a hard time knowing exactly how to comply with it because when they, when they very first said, Oh, you could point people toward a countervailing view, uh, a source of a countervailing view. I didn't even really understand what they meant by that. No. Um, I, and and it seemed like they were intentionally being ambiguous about it because they probably didn't. If they gave a very specific way, oh, if you just have this link in the video, yeah, yeah, it would kind yeah. of undermine it because then somebody could post, a, you know, essentially intentional election disinformation yeah. and then just use the magic words to keep the video online. And so I yeah. think they were they were deliberately obtuse about it. But when you think about any other area of of sort of law and society. Um, that's not how we think about how how rules should be written. You want rules to be written in a clear way so that you know what following them is and you know what not following them is. Um, you know, imagine if if the if the federal government of of the United States or Britain or wherever said, you know, we're going to pass a law uh, outlawing uh, this. You know, whatever it is, we're gonna we're gonna pass a law outlawing sandwiches. Well, what, you know, what's a sandwich? <laughs> are cheeseburgers sandwiches or hot dog yeah. sandwiches? Well, we're not willing to tell you that because if, if we tell you that ha- that that hamburgers are allowed, uh, then you're just going to start making hamburgers all the time. So we're just going to let you find out once you've made one. Got right. You. <laughs> you know, that kind of law wouldn't work. Uh, but on but on YouTube right now, it's it's very much at the discretion of essentially uh, computers that don't understand context and people who are probably looking at a million cases and then just, you know, just smash that reject appeal button. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You've actually broadened my perspective on this quite a lot now. Good food for thought. I mean, because it, it can feel very personal, can't it? You know, <laughs> I, was, I was really angry, man. You know, I felt like, you know, it was a personal conspiracy against, you know, my message and my art. And, and, I, and I know for like, I had Lee Camp on recently and, you know, he's just recently lost his entire eight years worth of of work, just completely taken down, you know, gone, forever forgotten. Um, So it can feel very personal, but I suppose what you're saying is that it's not. I I would say that in the case of like Lee Camp and actually like Chris Hedges, for example, had a show on RT um, as well that's, you know, completely off, off air. Like it's probably a good example where you know, right now, while there, you're not going to find very much sympathy uh, for Russia or anything associated with Russia, um, you know, people had posted content, you know, throughout the last decade on the RT uh, YouTube. There were all sorts of journalists and whatever. And of course, you can criticize those people. Uh, you know, you might have problems with, you know, why would you be on RT in 2011 anyway? Uh, but, uh, you know, whether you like them or not, 
those people posted content that was not policy violative, right? The, yeah. the individual Lee Camp episodes on their own did not have anything that YouTube deemed worthy of deletion. And then Russia finds itself in a war with Ukraine. Um, and based on the consensus of the world community that Russia illegally invaded Ukraine, uh, they take down the entire RT channel. And so now Lee Camp's uh, content, which was not violative, is taken down. Um, you know, I think it's a, it, it points to the fact of how they use these situations to uh, sort of change the rules. But, the, but those changes can be retroactive. They could decide that something in the past wasn't allowed, uh, which, again, mm. is something that actually in most you know, common law societies we think of as wrong. You can't criminalize something and then go and look to see who did the thing before it was illegal <laughs> it was and then punish them for yeah. it. Right. So, yeah. you're oh, you're not allowed to post on Russian media. Therefore, we're going to delete the last decade of Russian media, right? Like, I, I have, you know, some degree of empathy for the people who contributed to that, who have, who have nothing yeah. to do with the conflict going on right now, and their whole archive of content is gone. It's also bad for the people who would like to criticize those people, right? If somebody wants to say, hey, I think Lee Camp was really naive about Putin, for example, right? I'm sure that they would really like to look through that archive and see the types of things that Lee Camp was saying in the past. Um, and they, they can't do that because the video is taken, the footage is taken down. Yeah. I mean, in an ideal world and the way I think it should be is that if you want to discredit a, a viewpoint, you hear, you hear all, all of the perspectives, you get it out there in the open, you debate it like adults. And then, you know, if someone is talking shit, we're all going to quite quickly discover that, you know, hiding it away or banning it gives it a kind of mystery and a kind of power that it doesn't deserve. But I think the turning point for all this was Trump, because until Trump came along, people who think like him, who sympathize with him, were just a small minority of you know, kind of nut jobs on the internet or whatever. Um, they kind of kept themselves to themselves. It wasn't really a problem. But then when he came along and amplified those views and kind of validated them. Um, and then social media obviously, you know, amplified that, you know, tenfold and it kind of spread like a virus. And then I think when we had an actual virus, you know, in the, uh, in the pandemic, sure. and we saw the spread of mass conspiracy theories and medical misinformation, I think all of that together, you know, the Trump stuff and the violence and the, 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 the anti-vax stuff and the anti-lockdown stuff, it all became so much more than just a, a small group of people on the internet talking shit amongst themselves. It became actually dangerous, physically harmful. I mean, I, I think on the Trump phenomenon, I agree with you, but I, I would maybe add some, a layer of detail to that, which is that in the time before, leading up to Trump's election, when it was sort of thought that Trump is a, a joke, right, by most of the people in the media, they were posting, uh, you know, they were basically broadcasting live Trump rallies. You know, you could watch CNN for an hour straight and they're just showing you Trump. Um, and I think that they've changed their tune now about that because they realize they broadcast him straight into the presidency. But I actually I remember mm -hmm. sitting in on a comedy show of Lee Camps in New York uh, at, during that time period where they were saying he, he was saying how, you know, basically, Bert, like Bernie was getting like like four percent of the amount of media coverage as Trump was. The difference between the Internet and the cable news is that the cable news is is finite. You get 24 hours to fill in a day. And so if CNN mm -hmm. is deciding to fill all of their time with with Trump, I, I would argue that that's actually irresponsible. I, I don't think that I want full Trump speeches uh, to be what you're watching when you're watching cable news. Um, 
because I think the internet is actually the right resource for that. So I, I think that there is a huge world of difference between like me documenting primary source stuff that can be looked up and watched to see the full context of the situation like that. It's historical. It can be accessed all the time, you know, whatever, versus when CNN is deciding, okay, people sitting down for dinner tonight are going to watch for two hours. What are they going to see? We will broadcast a Trump speech. That That yeah. is different. <laughs> that That's a choice. Yeah. Yeah, you know the score, man. So, like, switching gears a second then, something I wanted to ask you before you go is... The length of time that you've been doing this now, all the actions you've been to, more than most people probably. Um, yeah, absolutely. You've seen all shapes and sizes of this. You've been involved. You've been right in the center of you know violent outbreaks and riots, and you've seen you know countless peaceful demonstrations as well. Do you have a gut feeling or or an actual opinion on the effectiveness of civil disobedience, peaceful civil disobedience versus violence? Have you seen one be more effective than the other time and time again, or deny the work, or do we just need to go out and burn the city down? Yeah, so I think that it is. There, there's actually a phrase that a lot of activists use, which is like direct action gets the goods, um, which is to say that fi- like basically being out there in physical space and being confrontational, so not just holding signs, not just posting about something, but, but actually doing something while remaining nonviolent tends to be effective. And I would say that I can, looking back through my kind of archive of work, I can find a lot of examples of that uh, being true, where, for example, the police are going to um, uh, remove people from a homeless encampment. They're going to say, we're going to take all these tents, we're going to, you know, wreck all their stuff, you know, basically, and throw it all away. Um, I went to a situation like that once where an individual told me that he had uh, been on the streets for the last three years. And in those three years, he's basically never received any government services, but four times the police have basically gone through and done one of these encampment, quote unquote, cleanups, and that he has lost everything, that people took everything from him. But this time when I was there, there were activists who had called attention to, we found out that one of these is going to happen. And so myself, some other independent journalists were there as well as activists who tried to block it. And when that happened, basically when the DWP showed up with I'm sorry, DPW, the, the Department of Public Works in D.C., as well as police showed up. Uh, it didn't basically they ended up only taking the stuff that the homeless people there uh, volunteered them to give up. Right. OK, so this tent has actually not had anybody in it for months and it's filled with trash. You can take that away. But but they didn't end up taking anything else. And they probably would have were it not for the those people basically saying we're going to stand in your way. So right. I, you know, I could think of a lot of other examples about how nonviolent civil disobedience tends to uh, raise awareness to issues um, and in some cases can actually like stop the thing from happening the way that it was going to happen. In my experience, um, violence and the threats of violence tend to be uh, a product, uh, unproductive <laughs> for any given um, movement, right? So, so Trump, the Trump movement, the MAGA movement has probably been tarnished by January 6th in a way that will never... Uh, you know, exactly come back, right? Trump will have to be basically answering for that forever. And Trump is, you know, now trying to sanitize that situation, right? In order to re-legitimize himself, in order to frame himself as prepared to run again, Trump is trying to describe it as, oh, it was actually Nancy Pelosi's fault, or it was the fault of instigators. You know, my my people are being over-prosecuted. The left did the same thing, you know, all of that sort of thing. Um, but that's not, um, you know, but but he had he did not ultimately... Uh, gain, um, you know, what he thought he was going to gain out of it. Um, and indeed, uh, there were people who were intending to 
object to the uh, to the vote certification in Congress and then switch their position and no longer objected because they didn't want to be aligned uh, with the rioters. Um, and so in that, at least in that particular situation, um, it would show that basically violence is the opposite of uh, right. productive. Um, you could also point out that throughout history, there have been examples where that's uh, where that's not true. Right. You know, people could say, for example, that John Brown uh, in 1859, you know, like basically leading an insurrection to, uh, you know, promote abolitionism, like he was essentially hoping to overthrow the government to end slavery. He, tri- he triggered the Civil War during which, uh, you know, <laughs> during which slavery ended. Right. So arguably in that situation, um, in the long run, uh, violence worked. <laughs> so, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad this I'm, luckily for you I'm going to be broadcasting the entire of this uncut yeah, right. you of can, this uncut. Yeah, so right. if this was like NBC they would have just soundbited that bit there. <laughs> right so right CNN might have just said exactly Ford Fisher um, you know he's, he loves violence right so I mean it's interesting though that like so as you're talking about it when I think about my own history of documenting um, you know I filmed a lot of violence and and instead of like citing any of those examples like i'm t- i'm telling you from oh well in 1859 i can think of a historical example of violent activism working uh for the cause that it was meant to but i mean to give another example of of the often inevitable result of this kind of thing um in 2017 you know when i documented the violence that happened in charlottesville the alt-right had been in a way very popular they had been rising in popularity they were all over you know social media they hadn't dealt with as much censorship up to that point um, you know, Twitter was even giving blue check marks to some of these alt-right leaders. Mm, and yeah, yeah. Um, so that sort of seven months between the Trump uh, inauguration and then up to Charlottesville, you know, the the alt-right movement was sort of having the time of their lives. They're getting, you know, the New York Times ran a fairly sympathetic article called something like the, not, the neo-Nazi next door. And they're like, oh, look, you know, he has a, he has a wife and he eats dinner. He's very normal, just like you, <laughs> right? Like, and so they were in this very popular time period for them. And then when Charlottesville happened and lots of people got hurt and three people died, uh, that all that all changed, right? They were being prosecuted. They were being sued, right? So they basically ended up, you know, many of them uh, broke. Many of their uh, organizations end up infighting with each other, right? The, the theoretical purpose of Charlottesville, of, of the event that took place at Charlottesville, was called Unite the Right because the idea was to form a coalition of the different strands of the far right. Um, but its ultimate result was that those groups all ended up um, fighting and you know finger pointing and all that kind of stuff. After that, you know, by the time it went to a civil conspiracy trial, uh, they were all pointing the fingers at each other. Oh, it wasn't me; it was them. It was you know, like it, they were they did the exact opposite thing. They they destroyed um, the far right by by doing that. So it would be certainly an example of where you know a violent gathering um, uh, disrupted uh, their organizing. Man, what a cool job you have! You know, does it still is it still as exciting and as rewarding as it was when you first started doing it? Yeah, absolutely, and I would say almost even more so because, uh, like what I mentioned, kind of at the beginning of um, this podcast, you know, old events are often um, found with sort of renewed relevance, right? You know, a, a riot that I filmed in 2015, or, or a movement, I should say, that included riots that I filmed in 2015 became newly relevant as HBO is now exploring the Baltimore police corruption that took place in the context of that. Um, I have no doubt that as has happened, 
you know, Charlottesville on January 6th and the events leading up to those things. And, you know, the summer of 2020 had all sorts of uh, civil unrest, all of these sorts of things as I'm kind of accumulating events that I've shot, they all continue to be relevant. And so on a day-to-day basis, I feel like in general, there's more and more things I kind of have in my library behind me that may gain newfound relevance as, as time goes on. That's such an important archive you've got there, man. I mean, it must be massive as well, though. I mean, video files aren't small, and you've got, like, you know, years worth of the stuff. Yes, I, I do have uh, several, like, eight terabyte hard drives. And every time I finish filling one of them, uh, you know, I, I also I, I throw them onto the cloud. Like, I put a lot of their off footage into the cloud so that it's backed up that way. But I also duplicate the hard drives and I send them somewhere else. So I have you know, somewhere that I would, that I would never tell the public a, a cache of hard drives. <laughs> um, so that, you know, even if, even if my house burned down, uh, I would still have a backup of all of my footage somewhere else. Um, Thank God. but, uh, I mean, I would, this is something I would point out though, is that to people who just post their content online and they don't really have a backup mechanism for it, you're totally beholden to the platform. So, you know, God for forbid, but if YouTube ever, if YouTube ever just completely outright terminated my channel, at least my original raw footage would still uh, would still be there. I wouldn't. I would. I would lose a lot of history, a lot of searchability. Right, the ability to show people that footage would be uh, deeply hurt. Uh, but I wouldn't have actually lost all of my life's work if my YouTube channel were deleted. And that's not true for some. There's. A, I know a lot of content creators who basically, you know, are, have to live with the crossing their fingers that it never happens to them. Yeah, well, that, that's a lesson that I've learned. You know, I mean, it's not as drastic in my case as a musician, you know, but um, I've certainly had a rude awakening, you know, when, when I, you know, I was told what I could and couldn't say and I lost my advertising ability and I had my video taken that I realized, okay, this isn't my content when it goes on there, it's theirs. And they could decide to take it down or they can close shop and take it all with them, you know, and it's gone forever. So that was kind of a rude awakening for me. So I'm really glad that there are other places that we can, you know, use as a backup, even if it's not our main outreach to people you know um so with regards to that then where can people because i'm sure everyone listening to this is going to be absolutely fucking fascinated um where can people find your stuff uh the archival stuff where can they find you what you're up to this week and next week and and support you and get involved for sure i appreciate that so my outlet is called news to share it's news the number to share which you can find as news to share on facebook and youtube um, and then on Twitter, I am at Ford Fisher, F-O-R-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. And so what I've kind of found is that uh, Facebook seems to be probably the best place to watch my live stream. So if you're interested in kind of the watching the live stuff literally as it happens, Facebook seems to get the most audience for that. Twitter seems to get the most audience for kind of posting things right after something happens. So usually when I cover an event, uh, you know, I am uh, making a tweet thread sort of detailing what I saw. Uh, you know, highlights afterwards. Um, YouTube, I also post that kind of highlight reel. uh, So you can see those sorts of things afterwards. The live stream ends up on all of them whenever I cover something. But but YouTube specifically seems to be the best for looking at old stuff, right? So as we're talking about this, you're interested in uh, January 6th, Charlottesville, Baltimore, whatever, those sorts of old archival things, YouTube seems to be sort of the place to to do that. So I, I see all three of these as neatly uh, fitting in uh, with each other, which, with each one having its own kind of individual strengths. And you've got everything on Odyssey as well, yeah? And uh, so all of the YouTube content is backed up on Odyssey, which essentially represents everything that you would also see on uh, Twitter and Facebook, but it specifically is backing up the way it's presented on YouTube. 
Yeah, for that day when they decide to fucking take your account down or, or demonetize you again for, for no well, reason. Well, let's hope not, but <laughs> I suppose it could be. Oh, well, Ford, look, it's been absolutely amazing to speak with you. Thanks so much for your time today, man. I've really enjoyed it. I mean, what an interesting life you lead. And thanks on behalf of all of us for everything you're doing. If you're putting yourself in harm's way like that to share this information with us in the raw, it's such an asset to all of us. So thanks you, you know, f- f- on behalf of all of us. And please, you know, keep doing what you're doing and long may you continue. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. How awesome was that? <laughs> oh, man, I got to go back and re-listen to that one myself. I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Please do go and check out all of Ford's amazing work on all of his pages. His website is news2share.com, which is the number two. So it's news2share.com. Facebook, his main live streaming platform is Ford Fisher Video. He's on Twitter at Ford Fisher and on YouTube at news to share Next week, I've got an absolutely incredible guest. A podcast highlight for me for definite. I'm so excited to share this one with you. So please, I'm going to nag you again. Get over to hit the subscribe button, hit the bell notification, like, share, comment, tell your friends, get involved and help me get this podcast out there because it's not about me. It's about the guests and this incredible information. As I've said many times, I'm pretty much shadow banned on everything now. So I need you guys to get it out there for me. So please subscribe, like, share, and let's do this. Thanks again for listening and tuning in. I love you guys to bits and I shall see you next week with Ho Ho Ho. It's a good one.